Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Buscher. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Professor Sarah Brown from the University of Sheffield. Sarah is a professor of economics and her research focuses on the application of microeconometrics in labor economics, education economics, and financial decision making. Sarah has been a member of the Royal Economic Society Council and is currently an independent commissioner of the Low Pay Commission. She's also the director of the Institute for Economic Analysis of Decision Making. So Sarah, in this series of Policy Matters, we've been talking to a lot of economists about the relative diverse range of topics that we might not immediately think of as being associated with, econ uh, with economics or economists. So we've talked about issues such as healthcare, crime, happiness, sports. And for each of these topics, we sort of slowly discovered that actually economists do have a lot to contribute in these areas to policy and to civic debate. However, today we're going back to basics, <laughs> to a territory that is clearly and indisputably within the remit of economists, especially labor economists like ourselves. And of course, we all know that labor economists are the best type of economists. <laughs> so that topic is the minimum wage. And there's something to celebrate, isn't there? There certainly is. Uh, April the 1st, 2019 was the 20th anniversary of the national minimum wage in the UK. It came into force on the 1st of April 1999 at £3.60 an hour. It's now £8.21 an hour and it's very easy to forget just how controversial the minimum wage was at its introduction. It was designed to tackle the worst extremes of low pay and it was intended to raise pay and to prevent exploitation in the labour market. Many thought that it would force the low paid out of work, but that's not been the case. Over 20 years, the minimum wage has increased the pay for the lowest paid and it hasn't damaged employment. And it's become an established part of the labour market with a lot of cross-party support. So I'd like to delve into this a little bit more. Uh, and um, there isn't only just one minimum wage, is there? And also... If you read through sort of the recent literature, there's sometimes referred to as minimum wage, but there's also something called the living wage. Could you perhaps elaborate for us a little bit and for our listeners, what, what kind of minimum wages there are out there? Certainly can. So it's quite a complicated system. There are five different rates. So there is the, the national living wage, which was introduced in 2016 by George Osborne, and that's applicable for those aged 25 and over. And that's the rate that's currently £8.21. There's also a series of rates for younger people, the 21 to 24-year-old rate, which is currently £7.70 an hour, the 18 to 20-year-old rate, currently £6.15 an hour, the 16 to 17-year-old rate, currently £4.35 an hour, as well as an apprentice rate, which is £3.90 an hour. We have lower rates for young people because it reflects their lower level of labour market experience and it also reflects the fact that young people experience worse scarring effects in terms of their wages if they experience periods of unemployment. And the lower rate for apprentices reflects the fact that they receive training. And as you've already said, um, workers, rather than, for example, the self-employed, are eligible for the national minimum wage. Um, hence, there's a lot of current focus and debate on the employment status of, say, gig economy workers. And so, Franz mentioned at the beginning, you're on uh, what's called the Low Pay Commission. You're there with eight other uh, commissioners. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, presumably you don't just sit around and finger in the air decide, okay, 16-year-olds can be paid this and everyone else £8.21 or whatever. You know, How do you decide what the minimum wages and the living wages should be? 
Okay, so so the Low Pay Commission is the independent body that recommends the rates of the national living wage and the national minimum wage to government each year. There are kind of two main parts to what we call our remit, which is the job that the government gives us. The first one is to advise on and to monitor the path of the national living wage towards a government target of 60% of median earnings by 2020. And that's currently forecast to be round about £8.67 an hour. We also make recommendations for the three age-related rates that I talked about and the apprentice rate. And we have a, a different remit here. Uh, we don't have a target for those rates, but we're asked to help as many low-paid workers as possible without damaging their employment prospects. So there's a balance here. If we push, push the rates up, we need to think about what's happening to employment. And as you said, Matt, we don't just sit around and, and decide. Um, we consider lots of factors. Uh, we consider economic growth, average earnings, productivity, employment, and we do a lot of analysis on the impact of past increases in the minimum wage rates. And I think the key thing to, to focus on or, or, or to, to reiterate is that our recommendations are evidence-based. So we take evidence from many different sources. Um, we look at the latest economic data, we commission research, um, and particularly importantly, we take evidence from stakeholders. Uh, we gather this um, from our written and oral consultations. Um, and what's very important are our regional visits. So every year we bark on a series of visits and it's important in a sense because it takes time to gather data, but it also takes time for patterns to emerge in the economy. So when we talk to employers, large and small, uh, individuals, those in work, those out of work, it allows us to find out what's going on more quickly and it also allows us to gather more detail than, say, aggregate statistics can tell us. So every year we visit regions in England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. We look, we look at different types of places, cities, urban places, uh, coastal areas, for example. Um, just this March, myself and two other commissioners um, did a series of visits in the Swansea, Neath and Cardiff area. And this year we have... Uh, Visits in Eyre and Kilmarnock, Derry, Hartlepool, Wigan and Manchester and Great Yarmouth. So you get out and about all around the country, you talk to these stakeholders, so these are employers and uh, people in employment, people not in employment, and that's really interesting, the regional variation, because uh, previously we, we spoke to Carol Proper and she was talking about how pay rates, particularly in the NHS, for nurses, she's done research about how having that equal pay across the country uh, actually had some really negative unintended consequences due to you know, not being able to recruit the staff and, and higher death rates as a result. So that was one of the areas where we thought, wow, this is kind of an unintended consequence of, of a particular pay policy. Um, so is there scope? I think there's a London waiting is there for the minimum wage, but is there kind of, what do you find about the, you know, the regional kind of dimension? So you're getting confused about the living wage and the national living wage. Okay. So clear that yeah. up for us. There's <laughs> so, a... so the minimum wage and the national living wage are the wage flaws. So uh, they're legally enforced and they are the minimum that employers um, have to pay. The living wage is a voluntary 
wage, which employers can pay if they feel able to do so. So they're two very distinct and different concepts. So with the minimum wage rates and national living wage, employers um, can pay more and many choose to do so. But the regional visits makes make sure that we test the effects of these rates across different regions. So we already have, as I've said at the start, five different rates. And when we think about regional rates, um, there's a lot of complexity in terms of introducing um, those types of wage rates. So, so at the moment, it's a wage floor and the visits, the regional visits allow us to go in there and test what's happening in particular areas. We talk to people who... Um, employers who pay the minimum wage but we also talk to employers who are able to pay more than the minimum wage because that allows provides us with information which is just as interesting and valuable to us in thinking about our recommendations. I guess the danger in certain areas if the living wage is, or the minimum wage or the national living wage if they're too high then and employers in that particular region can't perhaps it is in in, in Wales or Scotland or uh, coastal towns, perhaps just the eco- local economy means that if you set that wage, employers can't can't pay it. So you're able to kind of gather the evidence and try and figure out, okay, what's the likely impact if we have this new living wage? Indeed. So so we ask on our regional visits, we ask employers how they've coped with the last increase, and we also talk to them about um, going forward. Um, what may happen in terms of the national living wage. As I said, with the national living wage, we have a target. So we have um, an indicative path that we can talk to employers about to say, well, you know, how have you coped with the £8.21? How do you think you'll cope going forward with round about £8.67? So we're always testing and, and, and talking to employers about what they've done and how they've coped with our wage increases. And how does that work in the sense that if I was an employer and you came to me saying, oh, you think you can pay £8.67 how would you cope with that I might say oh no 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 way there's no way that's too much um like we've been learning about uh, economists were always thinking about human behavior people's incentives surely as an employer when you speak to people the incentive is to say oh that's you know that's going to be too much Do, do you find that actually there's a bit of uh disparity there people think it's gonna be too much but then actually employers can adjust and and I mean we haven't seen big negative impacts as you said on employment so um, yeah how does that work out? Well we found with um, the last 20 years of research we found that employers have coped in in many many different ways Um, some have adjusted hours some have adjusted pay structures some have managed to push their prices up to consumers um, and some have accepted lower profit margins. Um, It's hard to generalise, but many employers that we meet um, would like to pay their employees more. So in in, in a sense, you don't get this feeling of employees are saying, oh, I I want to pay the lowest wage as, as possible. They don't. I mean, you know, two fine labour economists sat next to me. We've all heard of things, efficiency wages. So um, a bit of labour economics jargon there. Um, If we think about wages and productivity, for example, if wages go up, people may exert more efforts, they may work harder, they may go absent less and and so on. So there are positive effects on pushing up wages as well. Um, As I said, there there are certain sectors in the economy where it's hard, for example, social care, um, it's, it's hard. That's literally a, a sector of the economy that's in crisis. But that's why it's so important for us to keep talking to different sectors and different regions and different employers, as in different types of employers, large and small, just to find out exactly how they're coping with our wage increases. 
Sounds like a very tricky and complicated balance. I'm glad you're doing it and uh, we don't have to do it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's an interesting question here sort of that Matt proposed and I'd just sort of, sort of like to delve into that a little bit further. Um, minimum wages are popular, more popular across the world, not only in the UK. Germany's introduced a minimum wage. The United States, they've obviously had a minimum wage for a long time, but they are, there's a lot of talk now about increasing that dramatically. So, you know, I'm quoting this from The Economist, sort of the world has gone minimum wage mad as such. Uh, and I just sort of like to take it back to theory for a moment, because sort of classical labor uh, supply and demand theory that we teach the students, and it's probably the kind of theory that people like Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> subscribe to very heavily, um, really does predict uh, quite negative effects from the imposition of a minimum wage, you know. So you're raising the minimum wage, and boom, some people will be better off, but actually a lot of people will simply be unemployed. Um, but really since the 1990s, we've had a lot of empirical evidence, and the Low Pay Commission has uh, commissioned many projects into this that simply hasn't found these negative effects, these unemployment effects kicking in from the minimum wage. So you've mentioned some examples there, but I just thought uh, I'd get a little bit more from you on what's your opinion, why this bad stuff hasn't happened? Well, obviously, we're very pleased that the bad stuff, as you call it, hasn't happened. Um, and going back to neoclassical labour market theory, um, I think most economists, or well, many economists, would agree that you know classical labour demand and labour supply theory are based on very unrealistic assumptions, um, such as workers being able to switch from one job to another instantaneously, such as employers not incurring any hiring costs. So I think the key thing is that the real world is not like a neoclassical model of the labour mm. market. And what we find theoretically is that when we relax some of the assumptions, we find that minimum wages can actually increase employment. And in particular, labour economists have focused on the case where the employer um, has market power over setting wages rather than the market, um, the case called monopsony, again, to use more jargon. Um, but in layperson's terms, it's where we observe a, a dominant employer in a town or an area. And in this case, minimum wages can actually increase employment. And as you said, Franz, the, the, the empirical evidence and the evidence from our stakeholders tells us that business ha businesses have coped. Um, they've coped in, in many ways that I've already mentioned, adjusting hours, changing pay structures, uh, reducing non-wage benefits, increasing prices where they can, and squeezing profit margins. So, so far, employers seem to have been able to cope with the, the increases that we've introduced. I mean, I think overall this is, you know, a very interesting story i mean it's obviously a positive news story in, in general but it's also a very interesting story how economic theory really clashes with sort of empirical uh, evidence uh, in economics uh, and um, i guess just sort of my last question on this idea of you know cl neoclassical theory but surely at some point surely at some point if we keep pushing up the minimum wage there must be some of these you know, negative effects that were originally outlined. So, for example, the minimum wage in the UK is now approaching quite high levels in terms of international comparisons. So, you know, how much longer do you think this is sustainable? Well, people talk about a tipping point at which minimum wages may lead to job loss. Uh, the late Alan Kruger, who is the pioneer of research in this area, he commented on the risks associated with a minimum wage beyond the range studied in past research. 
And I think Alan Manning, a professor at the LSE, um, commented in the Financial Times on the introduction of the national living wage. Um, and when that was introduced, that was a large increase. It was a, a 50 pence increase on introduction. Um, and he comments, you know, of course, there's going to be a point at which if you pushed it up too far, there would be serious adverse effects. But Mal Alan Manning commented, but we just don't know where that is yet. So it's more of a case, you know, let's let's see what happens and then we'll we'll find out afterwards. Well, as I said, at the moment we have this, uh, we're, we're on this target of the George Osborne introduced national living wage of 60% median earnings by 2020. Mm. Um, so far, the evidence has suggested that the national living wage has not led to uh, large scale adverse employment effects. Um, and we, we continue to commission studies to look at this, statistical studies, and we, we continue to talk to our stakeholders. So as a policy, it's been as we've talked about, really successful in that it's increased the pay uh, at the bottom end of the distribution, so it's brought incomes up for many people, and the way in which the minimum wage and the living wage have increased uh, has led to wage growth for a lot of people at the bottom end uh, of the wage distribution. Uh, so this all adds up to uh, quite a good anti-poverty policy with people in, in work. We know a lot of people in work are in poverty, that actually more of the people in poverty are in work uh, than out of work. So increasing the minimum wage is a great way of, of addressing that. But I guess thinking again about potential negative effects, what about tax credits? Could we have done something different there? Is that a, a, a different avenue that would have allowed us to tackle poverty but without the potential uh, negative effects and all the difficulty of as low pay commissioners trying to set the rate at the point where it's not going to lead to negative effects. Could we have just done some tax credits and, and tried to tackle poverty that way? I think this is a really important point, Matt. As you say, the, the national minimum wage in the UK for 20 years is generally regarded as a success. It's ended extreme low pay. It hasn't damaged jobs. Um, it has business support. It has union support. It has political support. And the minimum wage has also been ambitious during the, the, the 2008 recession. But I would argue that it has its limitations as an intervention to address poverty. Um, Non-extreme low pay has remained. It has a limited impact further up the income distribution. And I would argue that it's weakly targeted on poverty. Um, the benefits are spread across households and the poorest households are not in work. Um, and in addition to this, it's an hourly rate, it's not a weekly rate. So I think we have to regard it as one of a range of policy tools to tackle poverty, um, but it's not a cure-all. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's very well said, because obviously if you're just working two hours per week, you know, the minimum wage probably isn't going to help you out very much. I have I have a question about these hours, and this is something just that comes from personal experience. Uh, and I, I do apologize to any listeners, it might get very geeky here. But as a labor economist, I look at the labor force survey a lot, which is a sort of a primary data set that uh, labor economists in the UK use to, to look at all sorts of things, employment measures, uh, employment, unemployment, uh, and wages, especially hourly wages. Uh, and I teach this to my students a lot, how to look at this data and et cetera. And really, whatever point in time you look at in this data set, there will always be a small proportion of people who are employees in work who are paid less than a minimum wage. Now, a small proportion of people of 30 million people will ultimately add up to hundreds of thousands of people. And this has been highlighted by the Low Pay Commission in a recent report that there are actually a substantial amount of people, around 400,000 people in the UK, who are paid less than the 
legally mandated minimum wage. So I guess my question here to you is, what's going on? I applaud your geekiness, Franz. <laughs> so unfortunately, there are a number of workers every year who are underpaid. Um, this could be intentional or it could be unintentional on the part of the employer. Regardless, um, from our perspective, it's still underpayment. The responsibility for enforcement of and compliance with the minimum wage and the national living wage lies with HMRC. But if workers are not getting what they're entitled to, the work of the Low Pay Commission is, is meaningless. So we monitor levels of non-compliance each year. Um, and in terms of measurement, this is a very difficult area due to many reasons. So, for example, the data doesn't tell us whether underpayment is intentional or not. The data um, doesn't cover the informal economy in much detail. Like the sort of delivery workers, uh, deli uh, delivery drivers. And, it okay. and people paid cash yeah. in hand and, and, and so on. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So... Also, there are some reasons why workers get paid less. Um, for example, if the employer provides accommodation, it's actually legitimate for them to have a lower wage. There's something called the accommodation offset. But as you say, we estimate in April 2018 that uh, 439,000 individuals were underpaid. We're seeing increasing levels of underpayment since the introduction of the national living wage. Um, and as I said earlier, this was a very large increase in the minimum wage. It was 50 pence on introduction. So we talked earlier about um, how firms have coped with the minimum wage increases, such as raising prices, taking lower profits and so on. But this kind of trend reveals that maybe there's another possible adjustment mechanism that businesses are starting to use, which is underpaying their workers. So it's an area that we're going to continue to monitor carefully and make appropriate recommendations to government. And what happens? So if I'm an employer and I decide, oh, this wage is a bit high, I don't want to pay that much, I'm just not going to pay it, what happens I mean, I'm not an employer, don't come after me, but what, what does actually happen if that's the case? So HMRC are in charge of enforcement and compliance, so you could be fined, you could be named and shamed, you could be prosecuted. So there's a whole raft of measures. Uh, your workers may make a complaint which would start an HMRC investigation and so on. Okay, so don't do it. I mean, it's interesting here. Is that, Do you think there's a kind of... Um, you know, this is, you know, we could relate this to policing, I guess, to some extent, you know, to, to, to what extent does HMRC police this? And is there perhaps an onus here on sort of self-reporting? And perhaps if these people are a particular type of people, maybe vulnerable people, they're less likely to report their low pay, their underpayment to HMRC. And there's a kind of an issue of just penetrating that knowledge to that particular worker group. I think that's a really important point, which is why uh, the Bayes and HMRC undertake communication campaigns. I don't know whether you've noticed, just before um, the 1st of April each year, when the minimum wage rates go up, um, you may well notice uh, big posters on notice boards near bus stops and so on, um, adverts on the radio and, and so on. So communication to workers so that they're informed about their rights is really important, but also making sure that workers um, who feel that, who think they're being underpaid, feel confident enough to, to raise a complaint and, and, and question this. Just um, moving away for a moment from this area of, of minimum wages and the low pay commission, uh, I just want to talk about a few other things because you've done lots of other really interesting uh, research and particularly on uh, household finances. So looking both at what influences them and how they then impact on things like household well-being. And we usually think about 
education and our financial literacy, our work security, things like that, maybe the sector we work in, as being influential on our financial decision making. But you've looked at how individual personalities impact on our finances. I mean, first of all, can you just tell us how do we even measure personality? So we adopt a a measure of personality which has been used and developed in the psychology literature, which is called the Big Five. Um, Individuals are asked a series of questions relating to conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism and openness to experience. So we use data for a sample of about 6,000 individuals who are basically asked to rate themselves on these five different areas. Okay, so we find out if you're really outgoing and really conscientious and that sort of thing. And then you have a look at how that then impacts on your financial decision making. So what what, what do we find? So we find um, quite interestingly that the strongest effects um, are related to the effect of personality on on debt holding. So in in our paper, we look at um, how personality affects asset holding and debt holding. So, for example, in terms of assets, if I'm a risk taker, um, I might want to invest in a stocks and shares ISA rather than, say, a cash ISA. So the, the, the effects related to debt, I think, are particularly interesting. So we find that extroversion is positively associated with the probability of holding credit card debt. And we find that conscientiousness is inversely associated with holding this type of debt. So it's important from an economist's point of view because it tells us that personality can affect affect the potential financial vulnerability um, and financial risk that households face. I think, I mean, this is very interesting because we're talking about really, because this is done in a kind of a regression uh, framework. So in layman terms, you know, you're looking at people who are essentially similar, but just differ somewhat by these personality traits, right? And the extroversion trait is this idea of someone who's talkative, outgoing, sociable, and you know, just <laughs> a bit of a party person, I guess. But actually, that trade itself then is directly linked to them taking on, let's say, more credit card debt. First of all, can we be sure this is one way? I mean, is this kind of, you know, is the, is the causality going from the trade to the kind of uh, the riskiness or, or how they deal with money? Or is it if I give you a lot of money, actually your personality changes? There's a lot of um, psychological literature which suggests that um, personality traits are relatively stable between particular age ranges, um, between people from 30, say, towards the, the late 50s. And we restrict our sample to look within the age groups where psychologists have told us that personality traits um, are relatively fixed. So uh, economists obsess over causality versus correlation. Um, we, we're quite careful in our analysis to argue that um, we may be picking up causality but we wouldn't rule out correlation completely but we do control for many other factors we control for socioeconomic characteristics such as gender age ethnicity and so on we also control for a whole raft of financial factors um, income home ownership housing wealth and so on so what's interesting I think but I'm biased for our study is that even after controlling for all of this standard stuff that economists focus on, we still find a f- an effect of personality. In the same vein, thinking about household finance, um, you've also looked at the impact of social interaction and kind of social capital on household assets and liabilities. And this, again, isn't something perhaps that immediately springs to mind when we think about household finances. But there are real implications for social mobility if 
there's an impact of your kind of social connectedness on your household finances. What have you found in, in this area? Well, firstly, I think it's interesting that you think social interaction does not spring into mind in the context of household finances. Um, people clearly talk about and exchange advice and information about finances, such as taking on a mortgage and, 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 and so on. So as individuals, we don't make decisions in a vacuum. We're in, influenced by um, the decisions and advice from work colleagues, friends, family and, and, and so on. Our work was motivated by some work in the US which looked at the relationship between social interaction and participating in the stock market. And participating in the stock market is, is quite a, a complex thing for people to do. But we wanted to expand this to look at the effects of social interaction on the holding of a range of assets. Again, savings, holding cash, as well as more complicated financial assets and as well as debt. Um, and, and we find that social interaction has a particularly um, important effect on debt. And one area which we think is particularly interesting, and I think it comes back, Matt, to the point you've made about social inclusion stroke exclusion, is that we find a strong positive relationship between being able to tap into informal financial support um, and social interaction. So it signals the importance of um, financial support from families and friends um, if, you, if, you, if you're faced with financial difficulties, that certain types of people who interact in the community are able to tap into, whereas those that don't are obviously not able to tap into that type of support. That's really an important part of the picture, I think, that we don't... Yeah, don't often think about, but when we think about social mobility, the things that people do and don't have, we think of like education and perhaps the job and the, the level of pay, right, as we've been thinking about. But we don't necessarily think about the networks that people have, the social interactions. And this seems like just another way in which people can get cut off and don't have access to those kind of informal uh, credit channels, I suppose. So again, this is um, important for, for policymakers. So just bringing it back uh, to policy and thinking about that, Franz and I have talked uh, in this series about we take over the country uh, and we put these economists we're talking to in charge. So say we take over the country, we give Amber Rudd the boot, uh, we put Sarah Brown in charge of the Department for Work and Pensions. Uh, what sort of things would you be uh, looking to do? So regardless of who I would be taking over from, um, I think I would be looking at the quality as well as the quantity of jobs in the economy. I think there's a lot of focus on the number of people in work um, and levels of unemployment and so on. But in terms of thinking about those in work, uh, I think there's less emphasis on the actual type of jobs that people have or the quality of the jobs that people have. I mean, this is something that seems to be ever-changing, having looked at some of the census data all the way going back all the way to the 1970s and looking at the occupational structure. That's obviously something that will forever, I guess, always be dynamic. You know, jobs are coming and going. You know, the coal miner's dead, but, you know, also, you know, the, the, the postal worker is sort of dying off. Uh, even the IT worker's going, and, you know, you have these new jobs appearing. Uh, you know, we talked about the gig economy a couple of times here, and um, et cetera. So uh, I guess my question here is, and again, perhaps relating this to the Low Pay Commission and the work that the Low Pay Commission is doing in relation to the minimum wage, uh, what are sort of the, the future topics of research that you yourself, but also the Low Pay Commission would be interested in, in looking at further? 
So in terms of my own research, um, I'm doing quite a lot of research at the moment about household finances. Um, one particular project that I'm involved in is looking at the relationship between labour income risk and household financial decisions. So thinking about um, how variable an individual's income is and how this relates to the decisions they make about, for example, savings, uh, taking on mortgages and debt and so on. And, and the project is looking at the extent to which households are able to or want to mitigate against future financial risks. That's very interesting because, I mean, a, I mean, as a layman, I, I guess I would suspect that that's increasing sort of the the variability of pay is increasing in the modern day and era. Is, is, that, is that something that's, do you agree with that? So in terms of the variability of pay, it is about how income varies, but it's also about um, how confident people are in terms of income streams in the future. Um, if you think about short-term contracts and temporary contracts and so on. And what, what we're interested in, in terms of the fi household finances is to what extent somebody who um, has a quite a, a variable income stream and somebody who's not certain about how long they're going to be in a job for, do they put money aside for their future? Are they able to put money aside for their future? I mean, one of the things that we've been looking at in terms of the household finance uh, research for the UK is that there are many households that hold virtually no savings and um, even low amounts. So if a washing machine breaks down, you know, someone can't clean their clothes, they can't go to work. If their car needs fixing, how do they get to work and so on? So regardless of saving for big ticket items like a housing deposit, there are many financially vulnerable people out there in terms of the amount of money they've put aside for emergencies. So we're trying to look at the interaction between the sorts of employment contracts they're on, how this translates into their income variability, but also how it translates into how they are able to organise their finances. So I say able or want to, because if someone's on a very low income, it's easy for us to say, well, actually, they should put some money aside. In practice, it's not easy for these people at all. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. We're going to have to bring you back on again once you've finished that research to tell us what you found. Thank you, Sarah. It's been really uh, fascinating to hear um, about your work and about the Low Pay Commission. And given the success of the minimum wage over these 20 years, I think we have to say, well done and keep up the good work of the Low Pay Commission. Thank you very much for inviting me on. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And my name is Franz Buscher, even though I sounded like Barry White. And we'll be back with more soon.